This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're all staying safe, everybody's staying dry, and we are now 38 days into Joe Biden's presidency. We're we're also already knee-deep into the 2021 campaign, and, and whether it's a race for mayor of New York City or for governor of New Jersey, we are 248 days away from Election Day, and it will come uh, sooner than you expect. Uh, whether it's President Biden or every senator and congressman and every governor and local election, elected official, everyone in government is trying to outrun COVID-19 to make sure the people remain masked, to be sure they get their vaccines, to bring towns and cities and their states and the nation back from the loss of life and the economic devastation that this pandemic has caused. Joining me at 420 to talk about the next steps for COVID recovery is the majority leader of the New Jersey State Assembly, Lewis Greenwald. He's got a seat at the table when the legislature talks about COVID recovery, and I'm going to ask him about reopening New Jersey schools, so you're, you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Uh, Governor Phil Murphy delivered his election year budget address this week, and it detailed $44.8 billion in spending. Uh, the state budget is a big deal, and at 435, I'll speak with two senators who have an enormous say over what happens to the budget and what comes in and what's, uh, what stays in, what comes out. Uh, it, it is Democrat Paul Sarlo, the chairman of the New Jersey Senate Budget and Appropriations Committee, and Senator Steve Oraho, the Republican Senate Budget Officer. Uh, I'm going to ask them about the budget and, and uh, a budget that calls for no new taxes, uh, uh, no cuts in spending either. Uh, and what these two senators, one Democrat and one Republican, what these two senators have to say is important. So please don't miss miss them. This is David Wildstein. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And in Edison, which is New Jersey's fifth largest municipality, there's a huge scandal. It's been brewing for for almost four years, it's flaring up again now, and there's, there's no sign of it being resolved. Uh, in 2007, voters received a mailing that had extraordinary, from, from what both parties say, extraordinary racist overtones. Uh, this mailer, it said, make Edison great again, urge voters to stop two Asian American candidates from taking over their local school board. Uh, and what it said in big letter, letters, and, 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 and it, it's, it's hard to hear because, it, because it's wrong. The, it said the Chinese and Indians are trying to take over our town. Chinese school, Indian school, cricket fields, enough is enough. And the, the flyer was clearly aimed at instilling fear among Asian American voters in an attempt to increase their voter turnout. It was an attempt to manipulate voters. It, it involves a group called the Edisonate, local leaders allegedly including some elected officials uh, and with people tied to the local Democratic Party chairman. His, his name is Mahesh Bajia, and this week he was picked as the Democratic candidate for mayor of Edison. In a tape recording that was obtained exclusively by the New Jersey Globe this week, a two-term Democratic councilman named A.J. Patil 
identified the masterminds behind this conspiracy. He said it was Bajia, and he said it was Satish Pundi, an influential lawyer. He was a Joe Biden delegate in 2020. And Patil's comments were captured in tape by someone uh, in a meeting of three people that happened just before he was to be interviewed by an inspector for the U.S. Postal Service last fall. Uh, he said, uh, and, and, and get this, this is, this, is, this is typical Jersey. The guy says on the tape that he wants everyone to get their story straight. Uh, he said that he saw Bajia and Pundi preparing the mailer. This is just what he said. It's an allegation. Nothing has been proven. Uh, this matter was sent to the Middlesex County prosecutor and to the New Jersey Attorney General, Grabeer Graywall. It was sent back in 2017, and nothing has happened. And last week, the Globe obtained a letter from the Edison Council president, also a Democrat. His name is Bob Deal complaining that no interviews have been conducted, that the township hasn't been contacted. Deal said he was frustrated by what seemed like a lack of, atten of, of, of attention and cooperation from the attorney general's office. And I'm going to read to you exactly what he said. He said, if there was ever a time to confront bias crimes, racism, social injustice in America, it's now. And he said that the individuals responsible for this racist flyer uh, need to be identified. The attorney general's office won't say what's happening. That's normal. They don't comment on investigations, but it's, it's taking a long time. I think this one's got some legs. Uh, it's putting incredible pressure on the attorney general and the county prosecutor, and it involves an election, a primary election that's coming up in June. This is David Wildstein. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And uh, this next one I, I, I want to talk about because it's – it's it's going to unfortunately it's going to horrify you and it's it's the kind of story that gives jersey a a black eye but but at least some powerful elected officials are on it and they're trying to fix it the new jersey state board of chiropractic examiners this is this is a group of of chiropractors who determine who gets their you know who gets a license and and how how complaints against chiropractors are handled they voted to reinstate the license of a Paramus chiropractor named Dr. Brian Bajakian, and he is a convicted sex offender. He went to prison after being convicted of luring and enticing underage girls on the Internet. The attorney general applied, tried to block that, but this board of chiropractic examiners, which, which basically governs their own, they did it anyway. And none of them would say why. And this has got a lot of people angry throughout the state. Senate Majority Leader Loretta Weinberg called the move to, to give a sex offender a medical license dangerous. She said it defies all logic. She said the board has placed the most vulnerable in harm's way. Governor Murphy called the actions reprehensible. And Senator Weinberg's introducing a bill that would disband the board uh, and reconstitute it. It's essentially a way of firing everyone on it. Uh, this has bipartisan support. Uh, Senator Joe Lagana Paramus slammed the board for abdicating its responsibility to protect children. The, the Senate Health Committee Chairman Joe Vitale, the ranking Republican on his committee, Bob Singer, they issued a joint statement excoriating the New Jersey Board of Chiropractic Examiners. Uh, so these chiropractors who decide 
who's worthy of a license and who isn't. I mean, as far as their public positions are concerned, they're on borrowed time. As far as their own reputations and their, their own medical practices, that's going to be up to their patients. But, but this, is, uh, this is something to keep an eye on. And, and the next one's unreal, too. The state's cooperating witness in a small fish corruptions thing. And when I say small fish, I mean because the people that were ensnarled in this were about as low down on the totem pole as you can find. Uh, this cooperating witness has continued to practice law. Uh, and build public entities for two years after he entered into a plea agreement in June of 2018. Uh, under that agreement, the state uh, now allowed the witness, it's widely believed to be Morristown attorney Matt O'Donnell, uh, to become the recipient of a considerable amount of public funds. I mean, we're talking about seven figures, even after he acknowledged what is still an unspecified criminal act. And since entering into a plea agreement, O'Donnell has billed government bodies for tax appeal work, sometimes precluding other firms from obtaining the work. And, and he's represented the state of New Jersey in court in his role as a municipal prosecutor. Uh, I was on a court hearing. I, I heard Deputy Attorney General John Nicodemo admit that O'Donnell has not yet entered a guilty plea and that the Attorney General's office has not notified the State Office of Attorney Ethics. O'Donnell has agreed to return the profits from his unlawful actions, but the state doesn't know how much that is. They have they admitted in court that they have not kept an accounting. So he remains, he, Matt O'Donnell, remains an attorney in good standing despite what is now a 31-month-old plea agreement with the state. Uh, and, and now the people snagged in this scandal uh, they're, they're, still, they're still going through all the legal wranglings. So uh, the New Jersey Globe's been watching this for more than a year. Uh, we will continue. We first reported way back December 2019 that an anonymous whistleblower contacted law enforcement about this four years ago. Uh, and we still don't know what happened. There still isn't a lot of transparency. The whistleblower told the state, he told federal authorities that that two lawyers were moving substantial amount of money through relatives and employees and friends through through this network of straw donors. So, so we're going to pay careful attention to that too. Uh, you are you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour, and we will be back with Lou Greenwald, the. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader to talk about the state's response to the coronavirus pandemic. I'm going to ask him about when New Jersey schools should reopen. And, and later, the Senate Budget Committee Chairman Paul Sarlo and the Republican Budget Officer Steve Orho. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. 
Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. Lewis Greenwald is the majority leader in the New Jersey State Assembly. He was elected in 1995 at, at age 28. He's now the dean of the State Assembly. Mr. Majority Leader, welcome. Hi, David. How are you? It's a I'm privilege do- to be on your show. Thank you thank for having you. me. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, I want to talk to you about the pandemic, but first, uh, I should know Judge Peter Barnes, former state senator, former assembly colleague of yours passed away this week tragically age of 64 what's your re-election of judge what, what what's your recollection of judge barnes well i was i'm very honored to consider peter amongst my friends that i made in the state legislature uh you know peter was passionate and intelligent and that is a great combination in a public servant i had the privilege of serving with his father Spent many, uh, I was at a number of events with his father and his mother, along with my wife. They were an inspiration. They were a magnificent couple. Uh, and all of their qualities and traits, they obviously passed on to their children. And Peter was the benefactor of that. And all of us who got to know him benefited from that as well. And, and he'll be missed. He's far too young. He, he sure will. And I, and I agree with you. Uh, Mr. Leader, COVID has pretty much dominated everyone's life for the, the last year, you know, especially yours as, as a state legislator. And I, I'm sure you're I'm sure your constituents are asking you a lot of questions about New Jersey's recovery. Let me start with this. What do you tell parents who ask you when schools will reopen? David, I would tell you that that is the number one issue that I am asked. Uh, and I think it it touches on a number of points. It It touches on the fact that parents are worried about the impact that this virus has had on their children. For all of us, our children are our greatest joy. It's our, it's just our greatest pleasure in life. And when our children are hurting, we're hurting. And we are seeing statistics that are alarming. Uh, You know, we've seen a 31% increase in children between the ages of five and 11 who have reported to an emergency room with a mental health crisis. So, you know, think about that for a moment as a as a father, as a parent, that you've noticed something so alarming in your child, uh, either depression, anxiety, loss of sleep, loss of weight, that you've you've decided to take them to an emergency room. Uh, and then and a, another age population, still very young, between 14 and 19, close to one in four, almost one in five of every children and every child in that age group has had suicidal thoughts, contemplated suicide. So parents are struggling with this. And, you know, I think it whether it's from a bottom down or a top down, uh, bottom up or top down approach, unemployment is up. That is a strain on the household. Uh, Lose your job, lose your health insurance. That is a strain on the household. 
Uh, we've seen other trigger effects, increase in addiction and opioid and increase in domestic violence. And I think ultimately this ends up falling on the children. So for a lot of reasons, I think there's a benefit in having a very strong conversation with a detailed plan on how we will plan to open our schools. I think it would take a lot of stressors off, and I think it would be a great benefit, a great benefit to children and to the family as a whole. And, I mean, I'm, it's these, these statistics that you just talked about, I mean, they are, they are disturbing to, to everyone. Uh, what can the legislature do to help fix that? What can the legislature do to, to accept the reality that there is an increase in mental health issues among children? So, Dave, I think the first thing to, to notice is that this isn't isolated in certain pockets. This isn't urban or rural or suburban. It's across the board. It's affected every child in every sector. Uh, unemployment, unemployment is across the board. It's affected every family in every sector. So I think the first thing we can do is we have a package of bills that are going to be tailored towards mental health that are going to help bring public-private partnerships to the table <clears throat> to identify some of this crisis early on before it gets to uh, a tragic state with our kids. I think by bringing professionals into the school to partner with the school, not only can we help address the needs of our children, but we might also be able, through contact with the family itself, be able to take some of the burdens off the parents. So that is one piece that we're working on. We have a five-bill package that will do a number of components of that to increase access, increase exposure, and help identify this early on. Uh, the governor announced last week that they're putting tens of millions of dollars into this program. I think that will be helpful. So that's one. The second is let's help get people back to work. And I think one of the ways to help get people back to work is to start planning now for next September to have a vibrant school season five days a week, get our children back into the school. It will help with their mental health stress. It will help with their physical health. If you're strong mentally, you're strong physically. And it will allow parents who have been forced to stay at home to have a more tailored schedule to get back to work themselves. You know, we've seen statistics around the country, David, of the impact on single-parent households and certainly on women-led households and the number of women who have dropped out of the job uh, market because of this pandemic. That has a dramatic impact on our family household income as well as on the economic vitality of New Jersey and states around the country. So creating all of that has a ripple effect, I think, if we can help get our children back in school. And it starts with vaccinating our, our staff uh, of educators. And whether it's from, you know, support staff to educators to administrators to counselors and everyone in between, we need to make that a priority. And we need to set out a schedule now so that we can have teachers in a safe environment, school officials in a safe environment, so that they are safe and the children can be with them. And along with that, we're not saying just open the floodgates, but obviously follow everything else that we've learned from the CDC over the last year, wear a mask, be responsible, but let's make sure these vaccines are working. It's remarkable the statistics around these vaccines. And David, as we're talking today, the J&J &J vaccine is being launched and uh, has received emergency approval. And all of that is just gonna help us with our supply to meet the demand that is out there. And I am speaking with Lou Greenwald, the majority leader of the New Jersey State Assembly. Uh, Mr. Leader, let's talk more about the distribution of vaccines. You, uh, you represent a South Jersey district. Uh, are, what, when you hear from your constituents, what are they telling you in terms of how the, uh, how the state's distribution plan is going? 
Well, we're getting, I think, wonderful grades on the actual physical experience of going in to get the vaccine. Uh, we have a mega site down in South Jersey at Rowan in Gloucester County. Uh, they're doing about 3,400 vaccinations a day. And the people that are going through say it's well done, it's well organized, the staff is friendly and informative, they're open and willing to answer questions. That's what you want in this environment. The problem remains, and again, hopefully the J&J &J vaccine will help with this, is that the demand is, is outstripping the supply and it's been slow to get in. But I would say, I think New Jersey's done a really good job. I think as we talk today, we're up, uh, upwards of somewhere around 1.9 million New Jerseyans have been vaccinated. Over 1.1 million have received a second shot. That is clearly having an impact as you look at the overall numbers of hospitalizations uh, and, and most important statistics that we're looking at is how many people are being hospitalized and how many people are we losing to this virus. And we're watching those numbers go down. So clearly from people that have contracted the virus and have overcome it as long as well as the vaccine. We're getting closer and closer to our level of herd immunity. But as we got to get on top of this virus before the mutations come, so we still encourage people to be responsible and wear their masks and uh, do the right thing. But we are getting back to a level of normal. And again, my hope is I think we're going to see a continued downward trend of this going into the summer. But let's have a plan in place going into September so that we can get everyone back to a level of normal for our kids in K through 12, as well as our kids in higher education. I think sometimes we forget to talk about them, but that's a four-year experience, and this virus has bled into two years of that. It's very important for these young people to have this experience, something that they've waited and worked hard their entire lives to have. Do you think the kids in New Jersey schools will, will ever, before they, they move on to a college experience, will they ever – Will they ever be able to catch up? Will they recapture what they've lost in a year of, of in-person classrooms? So, David, I, I think they will, uh, but I think it's going to take a concentrated effort. We have certainly seen kids that have moved to New Jersey. Uh, you know, New Jerseyans should be proud. We have the number one public education system, I think, three years in a row now nationally. And we have seen kids that have moved to New Jersey from other states who have been behind and in a very reasonable time frame, not only do they catch up, but smart kids, hardworking kids uh, exceed the norm. And we've seen that in areas from 12 to 18 months. Um, so there is a gap that's been created this. There's a gap uh, from lack of access. Uh, online learning has been very tough. You know, I t a lot of my friends that I work with and talk to in the behavioral health space talk about this addiction uh, to, you know, our technology devices. School used to be a release from that. They would get six, eight hours of school. They would get extracurricular activities at school, which would break them away from uh, these technology devices. Now we're asking them to lean on those devices even more to get their learning. So I think for a lot of reasons, uh, this gap has been created, lack of access, lack of technology, lack of uh, you know, the financial wherewithal of certain districts to provide it. Now we've put a rush on to make that up, but there's nothing that is going to replace that experience of being in the classroom with your friends, with your peers, and with a dedicated teacher in front of you and all the support that goes into that. That's why this system has worked so well. Uh, for generations, and it's why people are clamoring to get it back. Those of us who have lived it, we know what our children are missing, and we want to return them to that experience. And just just quickly before before we have to go to a break, Governor Murphy presented his budget. Uh, you you applauded full funding for the senior freeze and homestead 
rebate tax programs. What what does that mean for New Jersey? Look, I think there's a number of. I think what it means first and foremost is it's that's direct property tax relief, and property taxes are, in my opinion, the most discriminatory tax that there is. Uh, you lose your job, as we had record unemployment, the highest level of unemployment since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm your property taxes are blinded to that. You lose your health insurance and you have to go out in the market or pay for uh, an aftermarket COBRA product, your property taxes are blinded to that. So that relief that the governor put in, along with two other key components, uh, record funding for public education, which helps to offset the property tax burden, and record funding, first time fully funding the state's pension, which otherwise would be put on property taxpayers uh, is a tremendous relief. And Sounds like there's a, a lot going you know, on, a lot of moving pieces. So a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, Assembly Majority Leader Lou Greenwald, thank you for coming on. Thank you for uh, for for all your patience with you know. I know you were supposed to be on once before, uh, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk again soon. David, thanks for all you do. Appreciate being on. Thank you, Mr. Leader. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. I'll be right back with Senate Budget and Appropriations Committee Chairman Paul Sarlo and Senate Republican Budget Officer Steve Oraho. These two senators, one Democrat and one Republican, never hold back, so please don't go away. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together. Classic, punk, indie, 80s, 90s, whatever. If it's got passion and a backbeat, I want to hear it. And I want to know more about the artists who create it. That's why I read Rock and Roll Globe. Rockandrollglobe.com features the sharpest takes about what's good and what's um, not so good in music. They call it real writing about real music. It's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just crisp, surprising insight into music of all kinds, interviews with performers, concise reviews of hot new records, a look back at that great album that changed everything. It's all on rockandrollglobe.com. Check out Rock and Roll Globe. That's rockandrollglobe.com. I could hardly wait. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I am speaking with Paul Sarlo, the chairman of the New Jersey Senate Budget and Appropriations Committee. He is a Democrat from Bergen County, and Senator Steve Oraho, a Republican from Sussex County, is the Republican Senate Budget Officer. Senators, welcome. How are you? Hello, David. Good to talk to you. But I'm glad. Thank you both for coming on. So I'd like to start with this. One of you is a Democrat. The other is a Republican. Senator Sarlo, you... Uh, you want Governor Murphy to get reelected, Senator Oraho. You want a new governor, but it's clear the two of you are friends. It's apparent you get along really well. So uh, 
as Democrats and Republicans in Washington struggle to find common ground, Senator Sarla, what's what's the secret to working with the other party? Well, listen, Steve and I, uh, we've been working together now probably 10 plus years on the Senate Budget Appropriations Committee. I think I talk to him more than I talk to uh, members of my own party, uh, quite frankly. We talk often. We try to talk before uh, every meeting. Uh, we talk during the meetings and we talk uh, after meetings. We always don't agree on, um, on what's on the agenda uh, and what the legislative agenda may be or what the final budget would look like, but it's about communication. And I think we have an open line of communication um, and try to be respectful to one another. Um, and uh, I enjoy Steve's company. And Senator Orho, you you are a conservative Republican. Nobody would dare call you uh, what's the word rhino. Uh, but is is bipartisanship within the Senate the best way to get results for your constituents? Well, I think it is, David. And thank you very much. And and, and Senator Saul and I are are friends. You know, do we do we always agree? Heck no. You know we don't always agree, but it's important how how you do things. And we have worked and. Uh, a lot of times, in, in, I'm in a minority party, and a lot of times it's how we make what we think might be a bad bill better, and you have to do that through communications and, and discussion. And uh, a lot of times, you know, Senator Solo is, is very open to, to hearing, and particularly you put a good case through, um, look to see, okay, how can we make an amendment? And there's been many bills that, that Senator Solo and I have sponsored, um, you know, together, uh, we just did one just very recently, uh, made, hopefully it'll be a national model, called the Government Regu- uh, Efficiency and Regulatory Review Commission that brings the administration and the uh, legislature together to look at excessive regulation. And it passed the Senate and the, and the Assembly almost unanimously, and it's now sitting on the governor's desk, and it was Senator Sarr and I who put that in. And, and Senator Orho, Governor Murphy's budget called for a... $44.8 billion in spending, no tax increases, but no real tax cuts. Is is this an election year budget or is it a COVID budget? I would say it's probably, it's, it's certainly I would say an election year budget. And this may be where Senator Sarr and I you know, disagree on certain things. But, I mean, the governor, three things stuck out to me very much in the budget, in the governor's budget address. One was he said that he's, he's presiding over smaller government. And when you have a $10 billion increase from when you started to now, almost a 30% increase, I don't know how anybody defines it as being, um, you know, smaller government. And then the idea that they wouldn't have any tax increases. And, David, you hit the nail right on the head. In the past three budgets, there's been many tax increases and fee increases, but also there's tax increases that uh, are hitting, you know, uh, the working people and the employers. One is there was a significant uh, payroll tax increase that people will pay up to $500 more last year in in, in um, 2020, and then January 1st of this year, another up to $500 out of the employees' pockets for almost a total of $1,000 over the two years. Now, then in July 1st, the employers are going to have to start. We did minimize the increase, but the employers are going to have to start paying a larger uh, un, you know, unemployment tax uh, because of, have the record number of unemployment claims. And the third thing was when the governor said we're not kicking anything down, you know, any cans down the, down the road, that was an Olympian record kick because of the um, underestimated revenues that had, and we had been saying that as Republicans all along, that the revenue forecasts were way too low, way too low. Um, they went out and they borrowed $4.3 billion, and quite frankly, using it in this budget, that's an Olympian kick. 
uh, done it. It's a, it's a it's a record, barring that, quite frankly, didn't even go to the voters. So sure. we would disagree on a number of these things. And I'm, I'm speaking with Senators Paul Sarlo and Steve Orojo. Senator Sarlo, the, the governor's budget relies on, I guess, better than expected sales tax revenues. It, it relies on income tax revenues from higher earners. Uh, has the economy rebounded? Do you think these revenue estimates are real? Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, David. Um, listen, and also, and, and I just to, to piggyback, uh, by far, I think everybody knows the way I govern is, is from the center uh, out. I am a very practical, centrist, moderate um, um, Democrat uh, who has been able to manage his budget process for the last uh, 12 years or so. So when I take a look at this budget, um, clearly the re- uh, economy um, is in much better shape than we all uh, had imagined um, uh, a year ago today when this pandemic uh, took us down as a state, took our country down to our knees, literally. Um, well, one of the one of the big reasons we you know believe I mean just just the Wall Street Journal reported uh, earlier today that um, you know the pandemic aid the federal aid that was poured into the U.S. economy um, that January is the second largest rise on record uh, pumping a lot of money into the economy which also a lot of that money has gone to uh, working households middle class and that money has gone back into uh, right into the economy a lot of household improvements appliances goods. Um, sales tax revenues are are much much higher than we ever could have uh, imagined. So um, clearly, uh, I don't. I think that was a nice surprise for us to, to heading into to this budget cycle. Um, I am cautious, being cautiously optimistic that the economy is going to continue to rebound uh, as we go into the warmer months. Uh, people start to get more outdoors. We just did a two-year outdoor dining bill. Um, focusing on getting people outdoors into parking lots, into into open areas, and, and out there spending money. So I'm hoping there's some pent up demand. We're hoping that some of the higher income earners folks um, haven't who've, who've been pent up are, are looking to get out and, and put some money back into the economy. But clearly, I and I've said this uh, recently in a New York Times uh, publication that concerned about that fiscal cliff. So we need to be careful about that fiscal cliff. It's not next year, but is it two years or three years down the road? Uh, and is, this, or is our, our country going to face that fiscal cliff? So I'm going to take a very practical approach to this budget. Um, I support the governor and his um, historic commitment to, to education. Now is the time, if ever. Um, the loss of learning is significant. Um, we need to break down that digital divide, and we need to make an investment in education. So I am supportive of that. Uh, also on the pension payment, listen, we should have been making our pension payments. We, we talk about this time and time again. Republicans and Democrats going back um, have created this problem. Steve and I are just trying to fix this problem. Uh, government is accelerating the pension payment. There could be those who say do it in two, two years. Um, but clearly the revenue is there, and he's accelerating it. I am not putting my head down on a pillow, rec- re- forgetting that we have borrowed money. And at one point on that money, we need to pay our bill. So um, we're going to keep a close eye on that. And how do we begin to pay that down? So let me, let me talk about the borrowing. Senator Orho, you, you strenuously oppose the, the borrowing package. Uh, uh, what, what should happen now? What, uh, should the governor, now that he's seen better revenues, have, have cut a little bit of spending to try and pay that down? 
Well, actually, Senator Shaw and I were, were co-chairs of a thing called Path to Progress, and we put a number of uh, reforms, and the one thing that's not in, in the budget at all is any kind of reforms to, like, say that, you know, to modernize the, the pension system or anything like that, and we put together some, some recommendations. I think the first thing we got to do, David, is, you know, the the, the, the administration was sitting on, on the pile of cash, and quite frankly, by, on a bipartisan basis, we put through – you know, a $300 million bill to help our small businesses and our nonprofits and stuff like that. Uh, why are we going to wait until this budget gets approved, you know, in June when when we know and the legislature and, and Senator Shaw, I think, was uh, one of the prime sponsors along with, every, you know, everybody of saying, Let, let's get this done now. And if that's the case and, and this, there's the, the cash that's there, let's use it because, let's face it, the economy goes upon the cash flow being generated and thank God we had very um, businesses that were, uh, you know, adapting uh, on, on on the fly to try and you know keep you know keep them surviving. We're going to have a lot of businesses, a third of businesses, small businesses, you know, may never open up again. So let's let's use it, you know that if the recognition is there and the cash is there, let's do it now, not wait until until June or July when the budget is uh, is signed by the governor. Sure. And, and David, I also think, yes. you know, uh, clearly, yes. I mean, the, I think the governor's office and they have been very uh, they have made a commitment to me um, that uh, during this budget process uh, on the CARES money, um, they're going to be very transparent in how they spent it, the investments they made, how they put it back into people's uh, um, pockets. And it's flowed from uh, into the, through the counties and, and through small businesses. Um, but we're also kind of keeping an eye on what's happening in Washington on this next package that um, um, is is kind of uh, right here on the cusp of potentially coming coming out. Clearly, the Murphy administration has a strong relationship with the Biden administration, um, and clearly there could be some more federal dollars coming our way, uh, and we're going to keep a close eye on that because those dollars, or perhaps in, in, in lieu of dollars, forgiveness of uh, of some of the debt, some of the pandemic relief monies that we had, the monies that we had borrowed. So um, we're going to keep a close eye on that. Uh, we're going to work with the Murphy administration on that. Um, I, I, you know, in conversations with the administration, they recognize um, that that debt is sitting there, and we have to pay we we have to pay that bill back. We have to pay that debt back. So um, they're not forgetting about it. So, Senator Charlie, your your committee has never, at least in the in what is you've been chairman for what, eleven years, twelve years, something like that. Yes. Uh, your committee has never been a rubber stamp for any governor's budget. So, what happens now? Now that the governor has presented it to you, you have a, you have till till June thirtieth at eleven fifty nine p.m. before the state would shut down. What what's going to happen over the next few months? Well, we'll we'll conduct a series of meetings and hearings. We're going to hopefully be doing some of them as a. Uh, in person, uh, that's my goal. We'll, we'll start off remotely, but I, I love to uh, meet with my colleagues and, and meet with the governor, uh, the department, uh, the department heads uh, in person. But we're gonna we're gonna scrub the budget as we we always do. You're right. There, I, I, in the 12 years I have chaired this committee, no budget has gone back to the administration in the same way it started. Uh, good starting point this year. There's no taxes. There's no fees uh, increases. Um, that's a good way, good start. Um, so uh, there's going to be no arguing in that. That's always usually your first bone of contention. So we're going to take that off the table. Um, and clearly we're going to take a close look. Uh, is, is there some spending perhaps 
we we could cut clearly not on education and clearly probably not on the pension investment but are are there some other things that we could be doing uh, a little bit smarter to put some money um towards uh, towards debt there is there is some uh, the governor has built in a, a decent surplus into this budget so uh it's in our hands now uh it's in our hands it's in our hands um i, I don't want to sit around to june 30th we are all hopeful um as we are every year um, but this year without the without the taxes and the fees we are hopeful we'll be able to put something together um and get something back to this governor uh in early june and senator Orho, what, what will republicans look to do over the next few months in this budget process well david first of all i i do agree with senator Sorrell. he he's never been a rubber stamp and i'm sure he'll he'll be talking with us as as much as as possible uh, obviously, he's going to be pressured by the administration and, and whatnot, but at the same time, never been a, a rubber stamp. We're going to be pushing back to say that, listen, first of all, can, let, let's get help these small businesses and nonprofits now. Not, let's, let's not wait um, on this hoard of cash that, that is sitting there. We've been saying this for over you know, almost almost a year as we're coming up uh, up now. The other thing we're going to be pushing for is is those reforms. I mean, there needs to be. Listen, it's you know, there's been many many times when we've put through the recommendations, and there's that bipartisan path to progress that has a lot of recommendations, and these kind of the kinds of recommendations that have been in around New Jersey for thirty. 25, 30 years. So there's nothing new here. So we're going to be pushing for some of those reforms as well so that we can start really, you know, getting New Jersey back to where it should be is a great place to uh, listen. We got great assets. We got a great location. We got a great workforce, great, great education system. You know, may not agree with how it's funded, you know, uh, equally around the state, but we do have a very good education system. So let's get start getting the value out of those assets. Well, and as I said earlier, this it's just it absolutely seems to be what uh, what should be the model for all governments, whether it's at the local level or or in Washington, is is two senators, two people, a Democrat and a Republican, who 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 can who can agree to disagree. And I think that's I think that's that's very helpful. So I, I want to thank you both, Senator Paul Sarla, Chairman of the the Senate Budget and Appropriations Committee, Senator Steve Oraho, the Republican uh, Budget Officer. Thank you for coming on. And and I hope we'll I hope we'll have a chance. Maybe the, the three of us can talk about the budget again before it's uh, it's finally presented. Love the opportunity, David. Thank you, thank you very much, gentlemen. And please stay safe. Uh, this is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about judges. So please don't miss that. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour 
on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back, everybody. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. And so back in 1947, when New Jersey's modern-day founding fathers were writing a new state constitution, they set a mandatory retirement age of 70 for all state judges, for for Superior Court, for the Appellate, for the Supreme Court. Uh, When you are 70, literally on your 70th birthday, uh, you you must leave, you must retire. Uh, And at that time, the average life expectancy of men in the United States, uh, and I'm I'm using men because uh, in 1947, there was only one woman on the bench at the time. Her name was Libby Bernstein Satcher in Union County. Uh, The average life expectancy was 62. And we are now nearly 75 years later, and the average life expectancy has thankfully increased to anywhere between 78 and 81. Uh, So on Friday, I asked Governor Murphy if maybe it's time to take another look at whether 70 might be too young to force a judge to retire. Uh, The governor acknowledged some new realities. He said that the president of the United States is 78, that, that the 78-year-old president replaced a 74-year-old president. And, and quite frankly, about one quarter of the New Jersey State Senate is over age 70. That means that if, if the same rules in the Constitution were applied to the legislature as they are to the judiciary, you'd have 25% turnover coming up in the next election. Uh, so Governor Murphy said he'd think about an increase of the judicial retirement age. Uh, he said his words that it's, it's not a blip anymore, uh, that 70 might be a little young. Uh, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Nicholas Scatari, he said he'd look into it too. And last night I had a fascinating conversation with a man named Martin Herman. And, and I've been watching Martin Herman, since, since I was a kid going down to the legislature in the early 1970s, uh, he was one of the smartest men in Trenton. Uh, and after his time in the legislature ended, he became a judge. He became a judge. He was about 47 years old, and, and he retired. And then he got called back because in New Jersey, what they, they, have, they have this, this area this zone in between age 70 and age 80 where you have to retire you have to take your pension but if they need you if there's a backlog in the courts they'll bring you back in but that only goes until you're 80 and once you're 80 years old you can no longer be a judge anymore uh so judge herman was forced to retire uh, and he told me last night that he thinks that a, a change of the mandatory retirement age of 70 is worth some consideration. Uh, he said based on advances in medical science, 70 is probably too low. And we're, we're all talking about science these days. We talk about science as being omnipresent in public policy. And the bottom line is, is we're not living in the same times as we were 75 years ago. And, and, and one of the things I just want to note that, that, that Judge Herman said to me, uh, he said that when you get past 65, they just ask you two questions. He, he says, they ask a judge, can you hear and, and can you see? So I think this is going to be something that, that is going to uh, be worth looking at. I think it's something that's going to get some attention, especially in a state where there's just, uh, after COVID, uh, a tremendous backlog in the judiciary. Uh, the only thing I, the other thing I want to talk about is, is 
what is now going to be a looming fight in Bergen County for Loretta Weinberg's state Senate seat. And this is this is not about whether whether Democrats hold this seat. Uh, Senator Weinberg's district in Bergen County is solidly Democratic. It has it has never elected a Republican since it was it was created in the 1970s. Joe Biden carried the district over Donald Trump by 36 points. But there's an upcoming brawl in that's pitting the two state assembly members, Gordon Johnson and Valerie Venieri Huddle, uh, into a contested primary. Uh, Assemblywoman Venieri Huddle uh, decided this week that she did not want to fight this race at a party convention for a endorsement that she's going to go right to the primary. Uh, Gordon Johnson had secured enough votes to uh, block the assemblywoman's path to the line. So she she's now walking away from a safe assembly seat to take a shot at the Senate. And and this is this is an interesting race because you're now talking about a legislative district and two Senate Majority Leader Weinberg's credit. This may be one of her, this may be among her many, many legacies to the people of New Jersey and to the people of Bergen County. And that is, uh, it's been since 1993 that this legislative district has not elected a white male to the legislature. Uh, so Assemblywoman Huddle is saying, well, we need to break this glass ceiling. We need to have a woman in the Senate. But it is uh, it is important to to point out that if Gordon Johnson wins, he would become the first black senator in Bergen County history. And Assemblyman Johnson is running with a uh, a Korean American mayor, Mayor Chung from Palisades Park. He is running with a. Uh, a Latina from Teaneck, Assemblywoman Huddle, uh, launched her slate this this week. Uh, it is it is a uh, a Democratic councilwoman from Teaneck and a councilwoman from uh, from Tenafly. Uh, so the bottom line is you have a, an incredibly incredibly diverse ticket, and this is going to be a primary to watch, but the bottom line is is diversity is going to win in the 37th District of New Jersey. Uh, thank you for joining me this week. I'm looking forward to, to talking, being back next time. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Thank you, Kevin Sanders, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on 77 WABC.